John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, hello, gentlemen. It is another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Today is one of those shows where we're going to get now back to general aviation. And a good friend of ours, Gary Reeves, who is a professional flight instructor, writes a number of books, is a great guy. Um, he's, he's identified as the, the, quote, pink shirt guy because Gary is known for the pink shirts and uh, the covers of his books are pink. Um, we have uh, borrowed an accident from his book because not only does he use it to dissect and talk about pilots and instrument currency and a variety of different issues, but we're using it to dissect the accident and adding to some of the perspectives that, uh, that he talks about in his book. I know, Todd, you were the one that found it, so apparently you were using Gary's book as a reference and uh, got enamored with this particular accident. As a pilot who's moving from private to getting an instrument rating, I'm a keen uh, fan of any book that gives me some insights about the IFR world. And his book, Single Pilot uh, IFR Pro Tips, is something he recommended when I met him at Air Venture. And he mentioned in there a section about when to declare an emergency. And his general philosophy is, you declare emergency not because you're in dire straits, but because you have a potential problem that could develop into a real emergency. And you use as an example the one we're talking about today, 1995 event, where a pilot was uh, flying at night from Louisiana toward Texas, and he had a series of problems, never declared an emergency. But had he done so earlier in the flight, he would have been able to get the airplane on the ground safely. Looking at the actual event itself, as well as the public docket associated with it, we found a wealth of other things going on. And I'll just say that this was a pilot who was, I believe, 34 years old, had about 340 hours, at least yep. uh, documented hours. And according to at least one of his friends, he had several hundred other hours that he did not document. Okay, let's set that aside for a second. He had about seven hours of flying in the previous 90 days, of which three happened the day before, which you think to yourself, wait, this person was flying at night. Did they get their night currency requirements for carrying a passenger, which he had a passenger, uh, of three full stop landings in the previous 90 days? No real indication of that. But given that this person had, since I believe it was a couple of years before, only about, what, 6.8 hours at nighttime, 
total in the last several years. We suspect yep. that he was not really technically legally current and would have been uh, at higher than average risk flying at night. So the FR flight plan that he had, even though he was instrument rated, and according to the passenger who did survive, they were using references on the ground to navigate. Perfectly okay to do. But uh, not only did he have a problem with the stated problem of a warning light was coming on in his autopilot system, there was another door light uh, going on with the airplane that uh, was there from the beginning, which the pilot didn't think was a problem. And he also had some fuel imbalance issues going on, which he was trying to correct during the flight. And it turns out that was the key. Instead of being on the left tank or the right tank, he had his switch in between the tanks. Fuel starvation, the plane crashes in the lake. Unfortunately, the pilot passed away. And in a part that got me really interested, they took the plane out of the water. It was not so damaged they could not run a test with the engine. And the engine just ran fine. They put it on the left tank, engine ran for several minutes, put it on the right tank, it still ran. They kept it in the middle like they found it in the lake. The engine would be starved of fuel and would stop. So uh, this was an excellent example for Gary's purposes. That is, if you have things going on, don't hesitate to declare an emergency. He would have had plenty of time to get to an airport before. And Gary and I have talked about this. We've talked about it on this show and the reluctance of pilots to declare an emergency um, because they think that it's automatically going to raise a big red flag and the FAA is going to be all over them and investigate them and then put a little red mark next to their name. And that is simply not true, especially if the outcome is successful. And in your demonstration to the FAA, when they call you, they ask you what was going on. You tell them. They're going to look at that as prudent decision pilot making. You know, I mean, it's not one of those things where, okay, even if you get yourself, you're not instrument rated, you're VFR, you get yourself into inadvertent IFR or IMC conditions, and you're successfully able to get out of it, especially declaring um, assistance from uh, from ATC. They're going to ask you about it, but it doesn't automatically say that they're going to come after your certificate. They're going to put a little red mark next to your name. They're going to make you do a 709 ride or anything else. Um, you know, I mean, look at Harrison Ford. I mean, he's landed on the wrong tact or runway and taxiway and done a few other things. You know, they called him, they talked to him and uh, they didn't take any action against his certificate. So um, there shouldn't be a reluctance by pilots, especially general aviation pilots that if you need the help, declare the emergency. You're going to get the full attention of the air traffic controller. They're not going to be switching you to a variety of different frequencies. They're going to clear the traffic around you. And you basically are going to have one-on-one -on -one help from that air traffic controller. So, I mean, that's a, a great point to bring up from this accident. But stepping back, it's obvious that this pilot from the get-go um, he had two two lights on in the airplane before they even took off. And he told the passenger, don't worry about it. That's okay. They're door lights. Now, I don't care if it's a micro switch that's maladjusted or what, but the fact is, is if you have lights that shouldn't be on and they're on, you don't initiate a takeoff until that, that situation is corrected. Because you don't know if that light is telling you that and I don't care if you have a history that, oh, yeah, that light comes on all the time. It's always on or whatever. The fact is, you don't know when that door is going to pop open. 
that creates an issue that's going to create a major distraction and that that can be again the start of a sequence of events that is not going to end well how many times have we seen that i mean it just comes up pretty regularly yeah carrying carrying broken items yeah and you know general aviation pilots tend to carry those broken items why they don't want to take it in they may not have the money to get it fixed they know if they take it in and a mechanic looks at it it's going to cost them a pretty penny uh even if it's a nothing kind of item um we don't know anything about this guy's background his relationship to this airplane um other than the fact that he was the pilot in command and he had somebody apparently as a passenger who's flown with him on a pretty regular basis because he knew a lot of his habits and and that kind of thing knew about his flight time and the fact that he wasn't recording flight time in his logbook, supposedly. So we didn't have a real true number. Um, but here and there, as an investigator, you only have that information that's, you know, actual. That is that you can um, hold in your hand. I can't take the word of everybody who goes, oh, yeah, he was the safest pilot in the world. He had thousands of hours. Yet his logbook only shows 300. That's what I go on. And like you pointed out, Todd, we don't know how current he was for night operation. We definitely don't know instrument currency, because if you read the passenger statement, um, the passenger survived and wrote a statement. Periods during the flight, they were in and out of the clouds. That's illegal, because if he's not on an IFR flight plan, and you can't just be popping in the clouds. I don't care if you pop in temporarily and descend below them. Um, you can't be doing that. Um, they're flying at night. Um, and they have issues that start to develop, like you said, as they were getting towards their destination. They were destined for Houston, um, and as they were uh, over Beaumont, Texas, uh, they started to develop issues, and of course, fuel management became a primary issue in this particular sequence of events. John, we've seen pilots who get the airplane, you know, the fuel selector in a D-10 between or not in a detent but actually in a position between two detents and of course you know you're preaching it all the time about pre-flight and checklists and everything else i mean that was a very simple fix given the fact that apparently there was still sufficient fuel on the airplane um to have made it apparently to destination but for the fact that the fuel selector was in an odd position um the engine quit and again i mean we all know how that happens, but where's the checklist? Where's the running of the, you know, engine out or engine anomaly checklist where the first thing you do is check you know, the fuel the, selector. <laughs> the fuel selector is an interesting uh, item because we everybody knows it's there. Everybody takes it for granted and nobody manipulates it. Because the number one, I can remember on airplanes years ago, the number one complaint, fuel selector, hard to move. And you go out there, and yes, it was hard to move. And you sit there, and you, you flip it back and forth a half a dozen times, and it works fine. So you know that they haven't been selecting it uh, often enough to keep it loose. They, don't, wouldn't, they wouldn't be able to tell what position it is in just by feel. A good pilot would know just the cockpit could be black would know just by touching it what position it's in. You should look at that stuff before you take off. You know, I just, 
you know, too many people treat going flying like it is jumping in your car and going to the grocery store. It's not that simple. And you need to have your wits about you. If you're going to fly an airplane regularly, understand your airplane. You know, at the end of the show, I often tell people, if you don't know what a good pre-flight of the airplane is, get a mechanic who works on the airplane and have him show you what a good pre-flight is. Because mechanics that do pre-flights on airplanes routinely use their senses, their sense of, of their eyes, their ears, the sense of touch. Touch the airplane, wiggle the airplane. If suddenly something is loose that you've never seen before, stop right there. Let's get a look at it. You know, there's so many things you can do to protect yourself uh, before you go flying that are not accomplished by pilots routinely anymore. And a fuel selector. Somebody like John Denver, a fuel selector. Right? How many pilots are, drive me crazy sometimes? How many pilots? The knob is missing, and they use the channel locks or vice grips. They got. I saw an airplane one time come in with the knob missing on the fuel selector, a pair of vice grips permanently attached, just snapped on there, and they left them there so they could move the fuel selector. Give me a break. Now, now, personally, I touch the fuel selector every time I fly because the standard that we have at our aero club is at the end of a flight, put it to the left tank. And before you do anything, you know, before you taxi, it's going to be on both. So at the very minimum, once per flight, I'm manipulating the handle, either turning it from both to off to, to left, rather, or from left to both or both during the course of a flight. But what I haven't done is having to manipulate it during an in-flight emergency. And I'm a fairly uh, you know, novice pilot compared to, you know, Greg here. Have you ever had the opportunity to uh, manipulate your fuel handle? your fuel selector in flight in something other than a normal situation. I have run a tank dry while I was doing other things and inadvertently had the, the tank selected because I switch every 30 minutes, especially on long flights because I had four tanks in my airplane. So I was switching between all four. Um, but in this particular instance, I got caught up in um, re redoing a flight plan on my iPad and um, I ran the tank dry, an ox tank dry. It'll get your attention, but you immediately boost pump on and you move that fuel selector handle to a different tank. And I mean, that's, that's automatic. And for this pilot, apparently, again, we don't know exactly what was taking place. The, the passenger didn't give us a statement as to how he was remedying the uh, engine situation when it first quit, he it was stated by the passenger that the pilot was able to get it restarted, but then it quit soon after. Um, does that mean that he switched to a tank that he ran out of gas? Is it that when he, he, he didn't move the fuel selector, but just went to try and restart the engine and whatever residual fuel was in that line caught for a little bit? We don't know for sure. But I mean, that's the, that's the, other than pitching for best glide speed, when you have an engine out, the, the next thing on the, uh, on the checklist is fuel and, you know, mixture rich or whatever, um, checking the fuel selector, boost pump on, those are the kinds of things. And it's like, you should, you shouldn't even hesitate. If that engine hiccups, you immediately evaluate if it quits, 
you have to, you know, you have to spring into action. If you're in level flight at 120 knots and you're, and your uh, glide speed is at 75, you don't have to push the nose over. You're going to maintain altitude, let that, uh, let the airplane bleed off that energy or even use that energy to climb. You know, I've done it in practice where it's like I was in a cruise speed, 160 knots. You know, I simulated an engine failure and I traded altitude for airspeed because I wanted altitude. That's going to give me a longer time to glide. If I do need to glide, gives me a little more time to work on an engine issue. And if I am committed, then I have more choices. And it's obvious that because these guys were at a lower altitude, they were down around 3,500 feet when the engine first quit or they first had this issue. It's at night. Um, they did ask the controller. They said, yeah, we got an electrical problem. And then they uh, they talked about the engine problem and they asked for a, an airport close by. The controller gave them two choices. One was 22 miles away and one was six miles away. The pilot turned towards the one that was six miles away. And then the controller said, oops, I made a mistake. <laughs> uh, the one that's six miles away doesn't have any lights on it. So you're going to have to go to the one 22 miles away. So now while maneuvering that airplane, especially in turns, you're losing altitude because if they are at a glide speed, and again, I don't, we didn't have any radar data to show whether or not he was flying at the optimum uh, airspeed for best glide. Um, you did some simple math, Todd, and, you know, 3,500 feet and having to go six miles, was he going to make it? Unlikely because that would be close to a 10 to one glide ratio. And for a Bonanza, which is what this was, uh, that's probably beyond the capability of it. That's closer to what you would see in a glider rather than a, a small single engine aircraft. And, and of course, he then committed. He told the controller he was going to shoot for a highway. And as you pointed out, this is back in, in the 90s, 95, in a part of Texas that may not be as populated as it, as it is now. And a highway isn't always lit the full span. So we don't know what kind of... Um, at least a uh, potential force landing area he was going into. And it's obvious that during whatever landing he was trying to make, he hit some trees and eventually ended up in a lake. But <clears throat> as you said, we always find some interesting little tidbits. And in this pilot's uh, or in the passenger's written statement that he provided to the NTSB, we were wondering, you know, the guy's flying at 6,000 feet and both of the, the, the pilot and the passenger were on oxygen. Now, I've used oxygen at night. High altitude gives you better, you know, acuity, visual acuity because your night vision goes out. And huffing oxygen, not necessarily at an altitude where you need to have it, but it's, you know, 8,000, 9,000 feet, you know, huffing on some oxygen is, is good. Um, and apparently both this pilot and the passenger were, um, sucking on oxygen out of a portable, bo portable bottle. And I, you and I had this conversation. Why would they be at oxygen at 6,000 feet? And I thought, and, you know, they mentioned this in the report, but there's no real context here. Fortunately, yeah. this event had a very extensive public docket. And one of the public document, uh, one of the documents in the docket was from the surviving passenger. He said, even though we we're not flying high enough to require oxygen, Scott and I, Scott was a pilot, and I both were on oxygen. Scott said, if I plan on, quote, getting lucky, unquote, after we got to Houston, oxygen would enhance my performance. 
in parentheses, I believe the oxygen might have made a difference in my strength and stamina after the crash. Now, lucky I don't think he meant surviving a plane crash. I think he had a completely different set of plans for Houston, which, by the way, is a place where you can do a whole lot of things, including uh, try your luck at whatever. And I, and thought, I think... I, I think the term getting lucky implies exactly <laughs> what they were planning to do once they got to Houston. Now, there's, there's another thing, not so uh, humorous, that uh, struck me, is they did because this was an accident. They had a toxic, toxicological examination of the uh, deceased pilot, and the pilot had, in essence, Prozac in his system. And according to the report, which we'll have in the uh, video version of this, you can see this for yourself, there is no allowable level of Prozac in one system, according to the FAA. And it might have been masking some other things going on. So at the very least, Prozac might have impaired his ability to make decisions and to act as pilot in command, which uh, begs the question, what was going on with this person? They didn't go further than that as to what might have been an underlying medical or, or psychological issue with the pilot. But clearly, there was something in the system that shouldn't have been there. He had his medical about a year before the crash. There's no mention as to when he started using Prozac, whether it was before the medical or after the medical. But speaking of the medical, there was something in there that also struck our, uh, caught our attention. He was mentioned uh, when he filled out his medical that he had about 500 hours of flight time. Looking at the accident report, they only documented 361 hours of total flight time for this pilot. So one of several things could have been happening. Like his friend said, he had a lot of undocumented time. Maybe he did have 500 hours when he got his medical. Maybe he didn't have 500 hours when he got his medical. Either way, there are questions that have not been answered. And getting back yeah. to, to Gary Reeves' point, one of the fears that people have for not declaring an emergency, and I'll quote Gary, when asked why pilots don't declare an emergency more often, the same ridiculous reasons keep coming up. The number one reason, the FAA will investigate me and I might get in trouble. Okay, hypothetical. Let's say he declared an emergency. He landed. Everybody gets out okay. The airplane's intact. The FAA might investigate him, but what's likely the level of investigation that would have happened in that case? Um, they would have probably just made a telephone inquiry as to what, what the nature of the emergency was, what your actions were, why did you declare? And given the fact that the outcome was successful, they may not take any action at all and think that, you know, your decision-making was prudent given the fact that you got yourself into a situation where you needed assistance, you exercised good judgment, you utilized all the safety tools available to you, i.e. air traffic control, and the outcome was successful. So they probably won't bother you after that. And in spite of all the things that might have been in this pilot's background, his reputation would have been enhanced by this. Something happened. He made the right decision. Everybody walks away. But instead, this is an NTSB investigation in an era where the NTSB investigators, I believe, were very thoroughly trained to document what was going on. So we're able to yeah. find out, A, uh, the position of the aircraft, sketches of the crash site, details from a toxicological report, which the FAA would not have ordered, in my opinion, and further details about his behavior and habits as a pilot, which calls into question his ability to fly an airplane and be a PIC. His reputation was not enhanced. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But the bottom line, if you're in something that is even the beginnings of an emergency, follow Gary's advice. Declare an emergency, land the airplane, 
deal with whatever has to happen. It'll be better than what this person had to go through. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's, look, uh, I mean, you need all of the tools available to you, especially at night, if you have an engine problem. If you were the cause of the engine problem, so be it. But at the time that you're flying that airplane, trying to get it down in one piece and walk away, you don't have time to worry about what, what the FAA is going to do to you. Your primary mission is to get the airplane on the ground safely. As the pilot in command, you are the one responsible. And in this case, he had a passenger with him. So he was responsible for that passenger and their survival as well. Right off the bat, when you were talking about uh, asking the controller for uh, runways yeah. and having make the turn, you know, it, this wasn't the impossible turn. But like you said, 3,500 feet, you're going to lose altitude. Much simpler to find a place straight in front of you, put the airplane down. Nobody likes to do that, but it's clearly the safest thing to do. You got to, yeah. you got to, you could make a longer approach to it. You can put your lights on uh, to light up in front of you. One thing nice about airplane lights is they go quite away. And you might be able to get it on the ground without causing very much damage at all. Yeah. But you will be slowed down. You will be in the right attitude to, to uh, come to contact with the ground. I mean, there's lots of things in your favor by just continuing on and putting the airplane down instead of struggling to try to find an airport someplace, some pay pavement someplace. And who knows, if he continued on, he might have come across a road that he could have turned on and landed yeah it's crazy it's crazy the situational awareness just the same things over and over and over absolutely well gentlemen i think that from a, a ga perspective i mean the key point here other than you know a funny issue about oxygen um the fact is is that the lessons to be learned here are of course ensuring that you have nothing to hide as far as the FAA. You are proficient, you are current, um, and the airplane is in a condition. Um, because in in what one of the other issues they had to deal with was this quote electrical issue that um, caused the autopilot to not operate. And knowing the type of autopilot that was on that airplane. A lot of times it's because of low voltage. Well, low voltage tells you what? You got a battery issue and or a uh, a um, alternator generator issue. So now the question is, was that airplane really in a mechanically good airworthy condition prior to the flight? And you don't need problems like that happening, especially at night where you go, you're going to be having a big amp draw on the electrical system to begin with. So there are a lot of different aspects before you conduct a flight like this. Um, it's evident that they did have a problem. He tried to address it. He had the, the passenger pull a circuit breaker just to shut off the pitch trim um, alert. Um, I mean, there's a, a variety of things this guy had now stacking up. That, the fuel, <laughs> and of course, uh, trying to figure out where they were going to put this airplane down, given the fact that they weren't going to make it to an airport. So again, it is all about what John keeps harping on, and that is prep. Preparation during the day is not preparation at night. There's a whole different way to prep 
for a night flight than it is for a day flight. The checklist is a little different. Your mentality has to be a little different. Your preparation must be inclusive of having alternative lights, i.e. flashlights or whatever. You have an iPad, fly with the iPad, because if you lose everything on the front of the panel, um, you can still navigate your way to the nearest airport or a suitable landing area. These are the kinds of things that you have to be prepped for. You can't worry about it or wait for it to happen because you're not going to have time. And then Todd, like we were talking, you got to know your airplane and you got to know that if I'm at 3,500 feet, my radius of looking for a place is not six miles. <laughs> you know, I bet you if, if I'm going to start doing this now, I'm going to ask some of these guys on when I'm hanging around at the airport, you know, you're 4,000 feet. How far are you from a suitable landing spot if you lose your engine? Yep. And see how many answer that. Now, if if those pilots out there use pilot apps like ForeFlight, you can cheat. And that is because you put your aircraft performance into uh, a ForeFlight and it will calculate and then show you with a green ring on the moving map, how far you can glide based on your altitude. There are all sorts of tools out there. Utilize them, <laughs> use them, know how to use them, Pre you know, prep yourself with them because you just never know when you're going to need to know, go to nearest and know how far you can glide that airplane. So Todd, I know you're well prepped because you're flying all the time. But I know that uh, all these little lessons that we talk about, you you have now incorporated into your own flying. Including the lessons for today. And you know, as I, my next to that last word, I'd like to remind everyone, we're part of a community, sometimes formal, sometimes informal. We've often gotten inspirations for doing shows from our listeners who mail us suggestions or put comments in the videos. This time, we're getting suggestions and inspirations from Gary here. I'd like to thank him for putting this in there. And hey, if you're flying IFR, even if you're not flying IFR, if you're flying at all, I highly recommend this book, which is kind of fuzzy here, but I'll have a flash of the uh, graphic yeah. up on the screen so you can find his book. Maybe see him at AirVenture or somewhere else. Tell him he said hi. Yeah, Gary has a series of books that uh, I would highly recommend. I read them. Um, just as a good refresher for me as a flight instructor. And he, he brings up some great points. That's what he does. He's a professional flight instructor and um, you can never learn too much. So this is a great way to stay well ahead of the curve. John, with that, I will leave you with our last word. And as always, if you're going to go flying, do a good session of pre-planning. Pre-plan before you go to the airport. Do it again at the airport. When you finish that, go to your airplane and do a very thorough walk around. Become very familiar with your airplane. And when you get in it, do a very thorough pre-flight. You know, even if you use some of the commercial, uh, commercially available pre-flights material, you might want to enhance it for some additional things like the Manipulate the fuel selectors we were just talking about. And after you get in the air, please, please put that head on a swivel. We just got a lot of people, a lot of new people flying. And you don't want to be a statistic. Just please 
fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.